Good morning. Uh, Would you take your Bible and turn in it to the gospel according to Matthew? Uh, We're going to be continuing in chapter 5 this morning. This morning's passage might feel like a more difficult one than usual because Jesus is going to confront some things that lay pretty close to home. But as we come to these, it's really important we remember what Jesus is saying. A few weeks ago, I spoke to you uh, about the Beatitudes, which is the blessed are statements, the introduction to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And this passage is part of that same sermon. So we need to remember the introduction. Because I think that if we just pull this out of context, we're going to walk away with the wrong message. So, pop quiz. What is Jesus going about saying? Shout it to the TV. What's the message of this sermon? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the good news of the kingdom. He's going about preaching the good news of the kingdom. This is good news. I was recently thinking about when we were back in person together in the old days and how it would be really socially awkward for you to get up and leave in the middle of a message. Like you'd have to get up, grab your coat, and like shuffle out in front of the people in front of you in your row, go downstairs, check out your kids early, walk out the courtyard. And if you've been in your building, you know they can see you walk out the courtyard. But right now, you can just turn off your TV, shut your laptop, and go have lunch. But I want to encourage you not to do that, even though you might want to. As we go through the first bit of this sermon, you're likely to be bothered or annoyed by what you understand Jesus to be saying. I am. But for the love of God, and I mean that, don't. Don't turn it off halfway. This is a sermon about good news, and I don't want you to miss the good news. And I think that we need good news because there's some really rotten stuff in our world. You feel it. Sadly, uh, if you're a woman who exists in this world, I know you likely feel it even more acutely than I do. As a society, it is impossible to ignore the reality of sexual brokenness around us. The Me Too movement brought a profoundly difficult message to the world. Sexual abuse and misconduct is shockingly prevalent. We're learning that slavery is not over, but continues evilly in the sinister world of human trafficking, bolstered by the $95 billion pornography industry. And as followers of Jesus, we are all too aware of how not just misconduct, but abuse has occurred in thousands of places with the placard Christian in their doorway. Not just me too, but church too is the cry of these survivors. As we've sung in the past, do you feel the world is broken? I do. So this morning, we ask, what does Jesus say into his sexually broken culture? And what does he say to ours? Would you stand with me as we read Matthew 5, beginning at verse 27? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. 
it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, Spirit of God, uh, you have given us your word. Would you teach us what it means? Would you soften our stubborn hearts to be molded by you, the patient potter? Take us from brokenness to beauty as we hear your word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take a seat. Jesus begins, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, and anyone who divorces his wife should give a certificate. This is the same format that we heard last week in the passage right before this. You heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And here, as with last week, Jesus starts by referencing a true thing that the word of God says. This wasn't him giving a sarcastic dig toward rules around adultery and divorce. This wasn't him saying, you heard that it was said this, now something new. And before we could go in, adultery is not like a really super common word. Um, it's kind of maybe a Christian word. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But for the sake of it, it's important to know what it means. Um, in this context, it's just meaning it's having it's sex with somebody who is not your spouse. So this is what he's talking about. And so Jesus isn't giving us sarcastic dig at this. Um, this is precisely what we read in the Ten Commandments and later in the detailed law instruction of Deuteronomy. These are God's instructions for what it means to be righteous, or like we learned from Daryl Johnson, right-relatedness is a good synonym for that. Throughout the first part of the Bible, what we call the Old Testament, God, who is the creator, lays out exactly what it looks like for humans to have right relationships. Right relationships with one another, with creation, and most importantly, with God. And if you believe that God is the one who created everything, and here at Hillside we do, then it should stand to reason that he is the one who's best equipped to explain how we are meant to operate in our relationships. Because right relationships were his idea, and they're his goal. But you'll find that this is incredibly restrictive. Initially, we see this in God's response to adultery, where he essentially proclaims humans, and here particularly women, are not property. In this context, adultery was often viewed not as a human violation, but as a property violation, that you were taking somebody else's property, not violating a sacred relationship. And God says, no way. This is a violation of human relationship. And by the way, as we go through, this passage speaks particularly of sexual sin of a man toward a woman. This is not implying that only men sexually sin. Instead, it is Jesus' way of holding men responsible for their abuse of power and authority that they've held, both in Jesus' day and ours, because God will always hold those in leadership accountable. 
Now, in the context of abuse or misuse of power in sexual relationships, I think most of us are probably pretty ready to be on board with that. That's not okay. But as we continue, God's design for sex is going to feel profoundly foreign and frustrating to us because it is far more restrictive than I think any of us would like. He places sex as the center of a ceremony of union of the two most similarly opposite beings in creation, male and female. In Hebrew, Adam's name sounds like the Hebrew word for dirt. Uh, In youth group, we decided to call him Dusty. And Eve, her name means life. And in the beginning, we read that everything was formless and it was empty. And God proceeds to organize it and fill it up, to give form to the formless and fill the empty. And then he creates human. And contrary to what you may have heard about Christianity, at the very beginning, God, together, Adam and Eve, dusty and life, are told to tend the earth, to organize it, and be fruitful and multiply, fill it up. Dusty and life, care for the earth, bring life, together. The God of the Bible has such a high view of sex that he makes it the very way that new life is made. It's a God-reflecting peace. Humans now make new other images of God. Up till this point, who could make an image of God? God. And then he says, humans, be like me and create new images, new reflections of God. And then God goes so far as to use marriage this man-woman union as a metaphor for his relationship to us, to which Paul says, what a mystery. And I think, I say, amen, what a mystery. God speaks of marriage as a self-sacrificing enterprise, not about self-fulfillment, but about sacrifice for another. The example we're supposed to follow is of Jesus, who died for the people he loved. Husbands, love your wives, the Bible says, in the same way that Christ loved the church, who gave himself up for it. According to the Bible, sex is a pretty big deal. What's more, God has such a high view of sex that he makes marriage a lifelong covenant. He recognizes that the level of deep trust and vulnerability and being knownness is really only safe in a context where two people are committed to not abandon one another. It's a commitment between two Christians and God himself. He calls them not two partners, but one flesh. Their sexual union has bound them together. And what God has joined together, Jesus later says, who can separate it? It should be impossible. This might sound ridiculous to you, or at the very least, very unrealistic. It does to me. In this day and age, a man and a woman, marriage, lifelong, really? That's not just unrealistic, it's oppressive, perhaps bigoted. And that reaction makes a lot of sense. As a society, we have developed a profoundly different ethic of sex than God's. 
for, for us, sex isn't about primarily showing who God is, but about expressing who we are. It's more about fulfilling my desires than it is about honoring another person's humanity. You might be tuning in after another hookup where you feel like you just treated another person as an object. Or maybe you feel like you were treated like an object. Now, in saying this, I do not mean to mischaracterize anyone. I'm not implying that sex outside of God's plan is somehow devoid of self-sacrifice or love. In the same way that I'm not trying to communicate that sex, according to God's plan, is always this beautiful and flawless thing. But we're looking at the worldview that maybe underlie both of those. In our particularly North American 21st century worldview, this is not everywhere in the world, our view of sex is one of identity and self-expression. Not just in sex, but in all areas, the idea is that the answers to our deepest problems don't come from our experience of the world around us, but they come from searching within. Looking in, not looking out. And certainly not looking up. The system is the problem, and understanding myself is the solution. And God, in that worldview, is just as much of a tyrant as Marx's capitalism if I'm just supposed to conform to his ideas and plans. I'm just a cog in God's system of oppression. But what if God isn't a tyrant? What if he loves us? What if he looks at you and at me and says, you are so valuable to me. You need to know that you are so much more than who you are sexually attracted to. Your value, your selfhood, it cannot be measured simply by who you wake up beside tomorrow morning. You're way more important than that. Single person. Do you feel the pain of being single in a sexualized world? I do. I'm approaching 28 years old, and I have not had a sexual experience with another person, which means I'm only 12 years away from being eligible for having a comedy made about me. Do you remember that movie, The 40-Year-Old Virgin? That's a joke. That makes me sad. Because our culture says that my identity is heterosexual man, not biologist or pastor or friend, not child of the living God, but ultimately a sexually expressive person. And because I'm not expressing that, I'm somehow repressed, probably self-destructive probably some psychological issue that I need to work through. And ultimately, I'm pitied. I'm less than who I should be because I'm not expressing myself in that way. Married people, do you feel the fear of being in a sexualized world? If who you are 
depends on your sexual activity or non-activity. The identity crisis of what if? The sexual FOMO, the fear of missing out, it won't end. I fear that there is a dangerous seed that has kind of been planted in our minds. For decades, we have ads telling us to never be satisfied so that we'll buy more stuff. Just one more Amazon order and then you'll finally have arrived. Oh, okay, maybe the next one. The next parcel, that'll finally give me all that I need. Or the next house. Or the next sexual encounter. Our identity and our sense of self-fulfillment is therefore always out of sync. We never feel like we've made it. The world's sex ethic keeps us always wanting just a little bit more, a little bit new, a little bit different. I don't know if I've found who I am yet. Meanwhile, the Bible presents us a sex ethic that's profoundly difficult because it is absolutely out of sync with everything we've grown to think. And let me be clear, the biblical sex ethic is not a heteronormative ethic. It's far more restrictive than that. It says that for a Christian, sex has one ordained place in marriage. And what does Christian marriage look like? Like the Garden of Eden, where man and woman are both so valuable that in order to co-image God, both people are required. Both man and woman are required. And because God places such a high value on sex, because marriage is a metaphor for God's relationship with us, divorce isn't part of the plan. This is what the Bible teaches. Now, if for you, the God of the Bible and Christianity are kind of just add-ons to your life, if you're not really into following Jesus, it makes no sense to follow this teaching. I wouldn't. If you don't think that Jesus is worth following, then I personally don't know. This is my personal opinion, but I don't know that following this Christian sex ethic on its own is going to ultimately do you much good. We see this in John 6. After hearing some of Jesus' really difficult teaching, many people stopped following him. Those who stayed, stayed because of one reason. The reason the disciples stayed, and the reason that I've stayed, is this. They said, leave? Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They didn't stay because this was easy teaching or because they agreed. They stayed because they believed that Jesus truly brought life. And that's why I'm here. I hope that as we continue, you'll see that Jesus himself, God in human form, does bring eternal life. And maybe that might be worth sacrificing something for. So let's return to Jesus' sermon here. He recognizes two things. 
The first, the Bible has said a true thing. And second, humans have taken it and perhaps misunderstood it. Jesus' audience was like, yeah, don't sleep with someone else's spouse. Got it. But Jesus says, no. No, it's so much more important than that. We've just spent a bunch of time talking about the true things that the Bible says about sex. We should ask ourselves, how have we understood or misunderstood what God means by this teaching? I think a few things. I think of the, what's being called now the purity culture of the 1990s that comes to mind. Um, it stemmed from good intent with books like I Kiss Dating Goodbye, but I think we misunderstood. Things like strict bathing suit policies for girls and women because boys and men had lust issues. And of course, apparently girls didn't. I think we misunderstood. Things like the passing the rose metaphor, where in a youth group, after passing this rose through the whole room, its petals were frail and tattered. We were told that's no longer valuable. That's what sleeping around does. I think we misunderstood. Things like ostracizing from our churches people who experience or who are attracted or who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or asexual, as if God was more concerned about people being straight than living faithfully according to God's word, as if somehow straight people aren't sexually broken. I think we misunderstood. By promising people that if you save yourself from marriage, you'll have amazing sex as a reward, as if faithfulness is a bargain we make with God, and I think we misunderstood. By telling people that if your marriage failed, then you're a failure, I think we misunderstood. By insinuating that marriage and having children is and should be the goal of every Christian's life, I think we misunderstood. I think we misunderstood because all of these things still sound a lot like just a Christian version of our sexualized culture. That the most important thing about me is what I do or don't do with my body. And this has implications too. Because if purity is a status that you hold, if you're either pure or impure, what if you are or have been sexually active? Is it too late now for you? Or what if you've been divorced for what would be classed as an unbiblical reason? Anyone who's been divorced knows better than anyone how it's not God's plan, how painful it is. You didn't mean for it to end when you started out. Well, and then what about for survival, survivors of assault? Holiness can't be about what has happened to you. God doesn't torment victims. And what if you've been divorced for good reasons? With Jesus, we affirm that a spouse who is abusive or commits adultery has already broken the marriage covenant. We would not teach that the Bible commands you to stay. Now, on that, if, if you have been or are being abused and you need help, I just want to let you know, on, on top of all the other resources that are available to you, and we've included those in the sermon notes, please know that we're here to help you and walk alongside of you as well. As a church, we're here to love you, not to blame you or question you, because you're far too valuable 
to be reduced to just what, whether you have or haven't X, Y, Z. Um, so you need to know we, we want to help you if that's in a, a situation that you're in. We've provided resources for you at the bottom of your notes. So in response to this perhaps misunderstanding of what has happened, Jesus says, but I say to you, and this is where some Christians have tried to say that here Jesus is doing a new thing, distinct from the oppressive God of the Old Testament, as they'd say. But to believe that is to abandon the teachings of Jesus himself. In a few weeks, we're going to come back to something Jesus said right before this section, that he didn't come to cancel the Old Testament because, in fact, he's the one who wrote it. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He wrote the law, and now he's come to make it happen. So he says, people, you're kidding yourself. If you think you're getting it right simply by not sleeping with someone else's spouse, you're fooling yourself because you're still hoping to sleep with someone else's spouse in your mind and your heart. Uh, like Pastor Elida taught us last week, Jesus, speaking as God, is not just concerned with us not murdering or not sleeping with someone we're not married to. He's really concerned with the way we might be rehearsing for it in our hearts, in our imaginations. The last time that I followed hockey uh, ended in 2011 when the Canucks lost the cup. I had really bought in, like not just bandwagon, but I'd been following along for a couple of years. I got my hopes so high, so hyped. If you were there in 2011, you know. And then, so gutted. I was done with hockey forever. Uh, The person who got me into hockey in the first place was my brother. And at the time, as you know, Roberto Luongo was the goalie. And my brother, and a lot of us, were pretty obsessed. Like, Lou, remember? (laughs) My brother used to spend hour after hour in the garage practicing Luongo's well-known butterfly stance. He practiced and practiced dropping, sliding, blocking, and catching a puck that wasn't there. He wasn't in a game, but if one day he was in net and someone shot the puck at him, what are his instincts going to do? Exactly what he's practiced. I learned in Psych 101 that when you drive home and you can't remember any of the route, like that's terrified a few people, I'm sure, uh, that's not because you actually dozed off. It's because your brain is so good at efficiency that sometimes it doesn't even bother your consciousness with the mundane stuff. Our ability to form mental habit is really strong. Similarly, if you're watching porn, spending time imagining sexual encounters, fantasizing about deep, intimate conversations, longing for a meaningless hookup, sexting with internet strangers, Imagining exactly the kind of circumstance that would get you out of your marriage. Well, really, the only thing standing between you and adultery is a good opportunity. You've already rehearsed exactly what you would do. You like it, and you want it, and you're in dangerous territory. I've often heard this preached, and I've probably preached it myself, that here, 
Jesus for sure isn't canceling the Old Testament. In fact, he's raising the bar. Levels up. Maybe like, gotcha, you're still not doing enough. But I actually wonder if this misses the point too. Is Jesus really telling us just work even harder? Because at this point, if we're to follow God's plan for sexuality only within a Christian lifelong marriage covenant of one man and one woman, and on top of that, it extends to our thought life, our online activity, our private moments and thoughts, this is like asking us to make a three-point shot, but from the stadium one city over. Like trying to thread a needle while wearing like a full firefighter's gear. (laughs) This is impossible. And I hope your conclusion so far is that you are sexually broken and misaligned. Do you feel inadequate? I'm sorry, but you should. (laughs) By God's standards, you are inadequate. Kevin, you said this was good news. (laughs) Do you remember the introduction to the sermon that Jesus is giving? Blessed, in sync, are the poor in spirit when you realize you can't do it. Exactly. Exactly. That is exactly what you should expect to feel when you're part of the kingdom. Because Jesus is a redeeming king. He knows that if we don't turn to him, if we don't get in the flow of his current, we're going to die. We can have life with him or we'll travel to our own death without him. What does a kingdom person look like? What does it look like to follow the king? We start with realizing that we can't do it on our own. Well, In the introduction, we also learned a kingdom person hungers and thirsts after righteousness, after right relatedness. Jesus is saying, what you've understood me to say is do what's right. Go against your desires and your convictions and just hunker down and do it. But what I'm actually saying is that I want to change you into someone who hungers and thirsts for this. Jesus says, I don't just want to change your diet, I want to change your appetite. What is the good news of Jesus? That he has come to seek and save the lost, to bind up the brokenhearted. That's what he says in Luke when he gives one of his inaugural addresses. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came to be enthroned as king and to do so, he lived, by the way, as a sexually celibate person in a fully human body. And he died and was buried and raised to life. And he did this to bring new appetites that will not perpetually keep you hungry and thirsty. Appetites that aren't out to make money off of you or take advantage of you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they will be satisfied. Who could truly change our appetites but the one who first created them? The bad news that I have for you, friends, is this. 
what you've always worried might be true is true. Sex will not solve your problems. Sex is beautiful. But that sexual experience that feels like it will finally let you be who you are, that one that's always just out of reach, it's a lie. You will never get there. Do you ever wonder why those people with the opportunity, with the good looks or the money or power, do you wonder why they keep searching for the next experience? Why do they never stop? It's because it doesn't satisfy. It's like trying to satisfy your hunger with cotton candy or trying to satisfy your thirst with salt water. It's only making both things worse. So how do we actively practice viewing Jesus as our king? Well, I'd suggest the next verse gives us guidance. It's pretty extreme. Gouge out your eye. Cut off your hand. An early church father, Origen, went so far as to actually castrate himself. Now, I don't think Jesus here is arguing for bodily mutilation. But there is something he certainly was saying. Take this seriously. It is better that part of you dies than all of you dies. As in the garden at the beginning, this is a question of trust. Will you trust that God knows what true life really looks like? Do you believe that he has the words of eternal life? When we abandon our trust in God, in the God of life, we die. Sexual sin is not what will kill us, but it might be evidence that we trust ourselves more than God when it comes to what we do with our bodies. And when we trust ourselves and our way of doing things, that will ultimately kill us. Jesus has given you and me the option to be renewed by him, to have our appetites reformed. Thank God. So what should our response look like? How do we daily turn from our own way and turn toward his? Well, I think Quite practically, there might be obvious things that are barriers to trusting God in your sexuality. Do you struggle with looking at porn on your phone? Is a big source of temptation watching Game of Thrones in your bedroom? Are you consuming stuff that's really taking you down the wrong way? Is Instagram a thing that kind of always causes you to think things that you shouldn't? It might be worth being the person without an internet browser on your phone and having that social death if it means that you have a life. Elsewhere, we also learn that the way that we view things, the lenses that we wear, determine whether or not we're filled with the light of the kingdom. Our worldview even matters, not just what we see, but the way we think about what we see. So much of what we consume continually reinforces that message of our culture. You are your sexuality. You are what you do with your body. From love songs, to TV series, to books, to vocabulary, to even language that we might use about maybe idolizing marriage uh, in our coffee conversations even after church. 
Might Jesus be telling us to watch that perspective, to maybe cut out that perspective altogether, that we are what we do with our bodies? Maybe we need to actually evaluate the material that we read, the music that we listen to, the things we watch, and ask the all-too-important question, what am I being taught about who I am and where my value lies? And if the answer to that question is that it's teaching you a totally different thing, you need to cut that stuff out. The insidious message of your value comes from what you do with your impulses and how you express yourself, I think that might even be like a foundational underpinning to why we see sexual assault. Because if, if I'm not fully me, and I'm not fully expressing myself, unless I am sexually active and expressing my sexuality, what do I do if nobody wants to join with me in that? Well, I'm gonna take it for myself because my identity is about what I do. Later on, Jesus says that we can't serve two masters. We either love him and hate the other, or we love the other and hate him. Well, there he's talking about God and money. I think it stands to reason to say that you also cannot serve both your sexual impulses and God. One will always be in conflict with the other. And if your sexual appetites are the only thing driving you, they will kill you. Now, if we're looking at things through a lens of sexual liberation, giving up your sexual freedom to serve God, that sounds, through our lens, that sounds maybe psychologically abusive, harmful, unhelpful, and damaging. But friends, you are as aware as I am that the most sinister, the most evil kind of manipulator is the one that convinces you that slavery is freedom, that your oppression is actually the good life. Jesus here is particular. He says, you serve one or you serve the other. The kingdom of heaven, it's not focused on something so shallow as just sexual liberation. It's about total liberation. Jesus won't settle for you being free to be a slave of your sexual desires. He will not settle for you finding your identity in such a small part of the beautiful person he's made you to be. What is the good news of the kingdom? If you will turn from that oppressive slaver and turn into his warm and loving arms, even when the rest of the world calls you nuts, he will bring you life and life to the full, not just for now, but for all of eternity. This is the good news of the kingdom. Now, friends, we are in a kingdom, and I hope that you are ready to join the kingdom of Jesus. But you need to know, there's no such thing as a kingdom with no citizens. We serve a king, and as a community, we are citizens of this kingdom. And we've spoken so much elsewhere about how we do this together. And no matter what you've heard in this message and what things God's asking you to do, I'd encourage you to do this with a friend. We want to help you. Uh, 
if you're really needing to look at some of these things that you need to cut out and you're like, I don't know, I'm addicted, I need help, reach out to a friend, reach out to us. Uh, you can reach out like specifically, if just emailing the office is an issue, call me, I'll talk to you. I'd love to go for a walk with you somewhere in a park with a mask or something. I'd love to talk to you about what freedom and life in the king looks like. Or if you need to discuss, like, what on earth is going on with this biblical sex ethic? This is the first I've heard about it. I'd love to talk with you. Reach out to a friend. Don't do this alone, because it's a kingdom. We're in this together. I've included a, a lot of resources in the bottom of your notes. Uh, we had a short amount of time this morning to talk about a massive topic. Um, so we as a pastoral staff would love to speak to you about this. Um, if you need to pray about this, right now you can hit request prayer at the bottom of your screen and somebody will be connected with you to pray. Um, so on that list, there are phone numbers for if you need help in an abusive situation. Um, if you are a child and you are in an abusive situation, uh, so you know, you can always dial 310 one, two, three, four, all the time. Um, and then there's ways that you can get in touch with us as a church. There's some books that will help you if you're dealing with divorce, if you want more to talk more about what the biblical sex ethic looks like. And church, if you need to figure out how to do a better job of loving the single people in your church, there's some books there on that as well. All of this. This is not about what you do but where you turn, and more importantly, to whom you turn. Jesus says at the end of this sermon, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. He will do the work. In a moment, uh, Pastor Bill is going to come up, and again, we're going to sing this prayer when we know Jesus, when he dwells within us, when we drink of the living water of his relationship with us, he will not only renew our thirsts, but he will satisfy them. I'm going to ask Pastor Derwin to respond, lead us in a response of prayer. <laughs>